to tonight to uh, to the the finest jewel in tonight's uh, necklace. Our final guest um, has lived more, far more, far better, and now far longer than most. She edited Simone de Beauvoir, Philip Roth, Jack Kerouac, Norman Mailer, Margaret Atwood, Jean Rhys, and Laurie Lee. She has always written and delightfully been surprised by her own success with short stories, a novel, and many volumes of honest but never flaunting memoirs including, instead of a letter, Stet, and somewhere towards the end, now published together as Life Class by Granta, for which she won the Costa. Tonight she returns to bedazzle the salon with her new volume of memoir, Alive, Alive, Oh, and Other Things That Matter. Nothing could matter more. Please welcome Diana. Can you hear me? Yeah. It se seems most improbable that you can in this new room. I'm going to read a part, a short bit out of this book, which is partly bits that I'd written before, put together, and then rewrote, and partly new stuff. And it boiled down to being a kind of um, record of what, when one has become very old, remains important to one, what one remembers, what one thinks about. And I'm going to be 98 next month. So, I think that I'm rather proud of the fact that this book will be coming out. It annoys me when someone describes this country in the late 40s and 50s as being dreary, an opinion usually based on the continuation of rationing for some years after the war's end. People who see it like that didn't live through the war. Those of us still alive who did see it very differently. I was 21 when the war began 27 when it ended. And during one's 20s, a year is much longer, very, very much longer than it is in later life. I can vouch for the fact that by the time you're in your late 90s, it flashes by in a trice. <laughs> it appears from the records that some of the men responsible for running the war sometimes envisaged us losing it but I don't think many ordinary people did. God knows why not. And I'm sure I never did. But I did quite often feel that it was never going to end. Greyness, joylessness, sadness swerving in and out of despair, being forced endlessly to endure, all that had become what life was, and I could see no end to it. Because I didn't want to stop being alive, I avoided as much as possible dwelling on this miserable condition. But that didn't stop me being in it. So when the war did in fact end, what I remember most clearly is standing in Piccadilly in a crowd of jubilant people, telling myself, You've got to believe it. You must make yourself believe it. It's over. 
and realizing that that belief had not yet fully dawned. I still felt as though the war was going on. That was on VE Day, Victory in Europe, by VJ Day, Victory in Japan, the wonderful truth of overness was shining out. So much so that it blinded me to the horror of those bombs on Japan, and I was able to romp down the mill with a group of friends to yell in wholehearted joy for the royals to come out on their balcony. The vast crowd gathered there were so benignly happy that there was no jostling or shoving. And although many people were forced to stand in the beds of geraniums in front of the palace, the Times next morning reported that none of the plants had been trodden down. <laughs> I thought, so touched at the time by that, and I still am, that, that enormous crowd, people were still being so careful. In spite of those Vs, it was not victory that was being celebrated. It was peace. It was the return of life to what it ought to be. It's true that the return was slow, but how, after all that we've been through, could it have been otherwise? It would have been daft to expect speed. Much better to enjoy getting gradually better and better, getting more and more for each coupon in your ration book, knowing that before long you will be throwing that ration book away. It's true that on my first visit to Italy, I did notice that shop windows in Florence were full of things still absent from shop windows in London. Oh, those pastries. And that the people of Florence were ahead of us in repairing bomb damage. But all I can remember feeling about that is how much I enjoyed what I was seeing. Everything was enjoyable because I was abroad. I was traveling as I had lost hope of doing. But, says Gloomport, if you can take with you only a mere 25 pounds, well, the control of currency was strict. It had to be. But wasn't it astounding how much you could do on 25 pounds, particularly if you were young? I was already too old for sleeping on beaches or under haystacks, as my younger cousins did, but I could happily make do with the most modest pensione or bed and breakfast, and I thought nothing of sitting up all night in trains. Had, in fact, some of the most marvellous holidays in my life, and couldn't have afforded to take more than that money with me if I'd been allowed it. The best adventure of the early 50s was the discovery of Club Mediterranean, <laughs> just launched by the Belgian family Blitz. My cousin Barbara and I saw a little advertisement for a holiday in Corfu, costing only 21 pounds for two weeks. And we decided to risk it. <laughs> we had to get ourselves to Venice, where we were aboard a Greek ship, traveling steerage in a crowd of Club Med members, all of us equipped with long necklaces of white poppet beads, issued to us when we signed on to be used instead of money when we reached Corfu. This simple but brilliant device added greatly to the holiday's charms because although we had paid for the leads in London, 
using them instead of coins felt so deliciously carefree. Every transaction at the club's bar or at the office where we arranged for excursions and so on seemed as though it was free. It was early enough in the club's history for the accommodation to be in tents, yellow tents and orange tents, scattered quite far apart among the olive trees on a big estate, olive orchards and scrubby woodland with islands of magnificent plane trees, one group sheltering the dining area, another the bar, a biscuit toss from the water where the water skiing motorboats took off. The air smelt of herbs. At night, the only sound was a strange cry of the little scops owl. Every need was catered for with inconspicuous ingenuity. For example, if you needed to iron a garment, there was a power point among the roots of one of the plane trees, which had an ironing board propped against it with an iron attached. <laughs> Each time a batch of gentil membres, we called, they called us, arrived, we were given a little talk by the woman who rang the camp, a member of the Blitz family. We were welcomed charmingly and given information about the amenities, available excursions and so on. And then lectured rather sternly about how we should behave outside the club's premises. Within them, we were free to behave however we liked. But outside, we must remember that we were guests of the Horfjots, who were unaccustomed to flocks of foreigners and had sensibilities of their own, which it was essential for us to respect. Dress decently and avoid rowdy behaviour. And this was important. Barbara and I were favourably impressed by this talk, an opinion not shared by the only other English people in our group, a pair of young men. On that very evening, they went out, got very drunk at a local bar, stripped off all their clothes and ran naked into the sea. <laughs> Next day, they were sent home to England. <laughs> It has not been Club Med's fault that since then tourism in Corfu has become more louche. <laughs> the, the tents were all labelled with the names of their inhabitants, and Barbara and I were at first surprised at how many French people had double barrelled names. The penny soon dropped. We, I think, were the only, so to speak, rogue women there. All the others were parts of a couple, married or not, and more were not married. <laughs> the place was staffed by young men, hoping for a holiday in the sun where they expected plenty of girls to be available. Few girls were available, so Barbara and I became perhaps rather overvalued by the staff. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara settled for a very handsome Corsican, who was a bit too macho to be easily managed. I, for a rather older Belgian, good value on the spot. He danced a mean tango, but a great bore when he turned up later in London. We confined these conquests to the evenings, where there was always dancing at the bar. 
because we wanted to see as much of Corfu as possible during the days. For that, we picked up two very respectable middle-aged Corfuots, mine being the island chef de tourism, a man called, like all Corfuots almost, Spiridon, Spiro for short. Spiro's job, he said, was most difficult because there was not as yet any money for it. He had, however, been able to buy four very small cypress trees, which he had just planted in such a way that when fully grown, they would most gracefully frame a particularly beautiful view. He drove us to see these little trees and to help us to envisage how charming they would be in about 20 years' time. <laughs> Dear Spiro, it would indeed have been impossible to offend him. We would hate to have done so. While this holiday made us admire Belgian efficiency and good taste, it had a sad effect on our opinion of the French, who were the majority of the club members. On the ship from Venice, we'd eaten one supper. Being a Greek ship, it served Greek food. And since we were steerage passengers, it was cheap Greek food. Rather tough meat, a salad of roughly chopped up cucumber and tomatoes, and rice pudding with dollops of jam. And oh, the moans and groans and even vomiting noises with which this meal was greeted by our French companions. They might have been offered dishes of pig's will. Thank God, they told each other, that soon they would be in the camp where they had been promised by the club's promotion booklet that they would be reunited with cuisine francaise. Cut to our first meal in the camp's open-air dining space. Corfu being a Greek island, the food was, not surprisingly, Greek. And given the large number catered for, cheap Greek food, rather tough meat, a salad of roughly chopped up cucumber and tomatoes and rice pudding with dollops of jam. And they fell on it with cries of joy. So much we felt for the French's reputation as sophisticated foodies. And their manners were pretty crude too. Each table seated eight people and at its centre was a big dish piled with chunks of bread. If the bread ran out, you could ask for more. So why, every mealtime, was there a mad scuffle as people tried to be the first at the table so that they could pile as many chunks of bread on their side plates as they possibly could? But their dining was a bit primitive. The bar made up for it by providing with the most exquisite citron pressé. There was, of course, plenty of alcohol as well, but for us, who hadn't set eyes on a lemon for years. That was what we most enjoyed. The only disappointment on that holiday was that neither of us was any good at water skiing. How lovely to be one of the people skimming so gracefully over the sea. And they were mostly French too. And how mortifying that neither of us ever stayed upright on that bloody board for more than a few seconds. Perhaps we could have mastered it given time, 
But there were always people lounging about, waiting their turn, so embarrassment made us give up. I think my fondest memory of the place is of an afternoon when, feeling unsociable, I took a book and a blanket for lying on to a hidden, tiny beach far from the tents, which was so lovely and peaceful that it seduced me away from my book when suddenly, crunch, crunch, slow, furtive footsteps approaching through the bushes, betrayed by the dryness and brittleness of the grass and leaves underfoot. Oh no, I thought, sitting up furiously. There was no one there. Had I imagined it? I lay down again. Crunch, crunch. This time I stood up. Still no one. Till another crunch drew my eyes down. And there was a large tortoise, or possibly even a turtle, labouring his way through the grass towards the water. I've never been to a modern club med, which would be, I gather, very much more glossy. But I still think of the organisation fondly. To me, it means that tortoise, the voice of the Scots owl, the scent of sun-baked herbs, spiros trees, moonlit tangos, and those citronfresse. It all seemed the very essence of life returned to what it ought to be. At home, too, that feeling prevailed, and it embraced a sense that we were making it more like it ought to be than it was before the war. In the 1930s, middle and upper class people had been having a very good time, but many of them had felt at least a little guilty about the ugly rift between the haves and the have-nots. The young people I knew when I was at Oxford were all, apart from a few with scholarships, benefiting from their parents' politics, but none of them was in sympathy with those politics. Many of us, including me, felt we ought to join the Communist Party, and some of us did. The reason why I wasn't among them was not worthy of respect. I did feel uneasy about ends justifying means, which I understood should be believed by good communists, but I held back mostly because of laziness. It seemed to me that devotion to the cause would be hard work and leave little time for the pleasant frivolities which I was enjoying so intensely. <laughs> Obviously, if we, the privileged, had been feeling twinges of guilt, the many underprivileged were seething. The country was, in fact, in a bad way. Therefore, it wasn't surprising that the election immediately after the war's end was won by the Labour Party. I was working at the BBC in a humble part of it, the information library attached to the newsroom of the World Service. We all stayed up all night in the newsroom, listening to the results coming in and getting happier and happier because they were what everyone in that room wanted. None of us questioned that Churchill's importance as our wartime leader, but none wanted the old man to steer us back into the past. It's sad to remember how sure we were that we could now set about building a good future in which fairness and justice would reign at home while we ceased to profit from our overseas possessions, having given them 
their freedom to go their own ways. Yes, it is certainly sad now, given where we are and what we have become. But he was happy to live through at the time. And there were genuine good things ahead. The NHS, for one. We were soon taking it for granted and now spend more time lamenting its shortcomings and acknowledging its achievements. But to anyone who remembers medicine before the war, it remains an almost miraculous institution. The one huge, solid gain achieved by our society that we must hang on to whatever else we lose. <laughs> Education too. <laughs> Education, too, left ahead. It still leaves much to be desired, but it's immensely better than it was pre-war. And the standard of living did rise. Many people on very low incomes began to join the rest of us by taking for granted indoor toilets, refrigerators, and other household comforts, which makes our present dive into, house, into poverty horrifying. During those dreary years, we got so used to simple material things getting better that they're getting worse now seems to be against nature. In middle-class life, those years sparkled in many ways. Fashion came alive again dramatically when Dior's new look crossed the channel. During the seemingly endless war years, we had been stuck with square shoulders, straight up and down silhouettes, and hems a few inches below the knee. Now, suddenly, we could look feminine again and embark on the delightful journey of sudden absurd changes. Colours were constantly being called the new black that turned the necessity of clothing the body into fun. And just as enlivening as the new styles of dress were those in design generally, it became a matter of great interest in every field. Before the war, the smartest look in the furnishing and decorating houses was all over whiteness. And the most common was cream-coloured walls chaired up by flowery chintz curtains and chair covers. Now, if walls weren't orange, they were covered with adventurous wallpaper. I can't remember the exact date of a wallpaper exhibition at, I suppose, the new design centre, but I can vividly remember how enchanted I was by it. I managed somehow to scrape together the money to paper the walls of my bedroom. How? The BBC was paying me £380 a year. And I had it done in ivy, life-sized ivy leaves, swarmed from floor to ceiling on all four walls. Luckily, I wasn't bold enough to put different patterns on each wall, which was quite becoming the thing. I was tremendously pleased with it, and it was hideous. <laughs> I hadn't the faintest idea of how to decorate a room successfully. I see now that this was not because I hadn't got an eye for good furniture and picture, but because the house I'd known and loved best as a child, my maternal grandparents in Norfolk, although not furnished quite as grandly as the houses regularly featured in country life, was in that style. That house, that magazine, museums and picture galleries, it was those that had formed my taste. Given a Greek shipping millionaire as a husband, or perhaps even better as a lover, 
I could have done my drawing rooms beautifully with ravishing pieces of 18th century furniture, fine Persian rugs, and truly good paintings. But it didn't even occur to me that someone with very little money could make a room look pretty. I just managed with bits of stuff my parents had let me take from home and the occasional object, however unsuitable, that had caught my eye. I was nearly 60 before I made a room look, I hope, attractive. <laughs> I didn't see anything of the official celebrations, the Festival of Britain, organized to celebrate the new Elizabethan age, as it was called. This was partly because, having left the BBC not long after Feast returned, I was soon very busy helping to launch a new publishing firm. And more because I had no man to do things with, being at that time between two love affairs. Later, when the 60s began, most people froffed with excitement about them. To me, they appeared to be just a continuation of the good times following the bad ones, and I was too contented to take much notice of the development of the Cold War. I knew, of course, it was generally considered threatening, but I remembered what real threatening it felt like in 1939, <coughs> when everyone knew in their bones what was coming. The surge of relief when the Prime Minister returned from a visit to Hitler and announced that we could expect peace for our time had been no more than very superficial. Sniffing the air during the various post-war crises, I could detect no whiff of that threat, whatever was going on in foreign affairs. But although my instinct about that happened to be right, I was no more aware than anyone else of what was really going on in this country after the war. This wasn't surprising, because the process seemed to be as slow and thus imperceptible as the shifting of tectonic plates, which changed the nature of the planet. Although, in fact, it was very much faster than that. If people had paid more attention to history, they would have remembered that it doesn't take long for an empire to collapse. When I was a child, I used to pore over an atlas, deriving much satisfaction from how much of the world was coloured pink, which meant, they told me, that it was ours. I pitied other countries for their little patches of inferior colour, and I suspect that when a personal misfortune in my early 20s gave my confidence and asked a shock, that childhood schooling and feeling proud contributed a good deal to my recovery. It went deep, that feeling that we, the British, were great. Deeper, it turned out, in a lot of other people than it did in me, because it would not be long before I grew out of it. And by the time I went to university, I had become sure that we ought to be giving all our pinkness back to Israel owners. But being ignorant of economics, I was unaware that this would mean our having to change our nature, an ignorance which appears to be true of our politicians to this day. The difference between being at the hub of a vast empire and being a tiny island off the shores of, but not belonging to Europe, seems to be something they're unable to understand. Their attempts to become European indicate awareness of a problem, but the blundering reluctance of those attempts 
an apparent feeling that Europe ought to be grateful for our condescending to joining in, makes it clear how superficial these attempts are. Perhaps the task of making our little island work well simply as such is actually impossible, and we will have to settle for being a tax haven for the rich of other countries. I'm glad that I shall be dead before the answer to that question becomes clear. But although it's probably tragic that the people running our country in the years immediately after the war knew no better than ignorant citizens such as me what was beginning to happen to no longer Great Britain and what to do about it, it remains true that while they were going on, those were lovely years to live through. <laughs> Right. Do you think it's really getting worse and worse? Well, or is it just being old that makes one feel that? No, I, 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 a lot of what you say registers is true to me. The, the idea that people can't accept uh, reduced circumstances, um, and it, it, it involves a kind of impossible swallowing of the ego that people don't seem to mm. to want to engage in. Um, at the start of the book, you say that you spend now a lot of time. Uh, uh, sitting uh, and, and thinking um, and that actually you quite enjoy that even though it was something that you pitied people for or were afraid of. Yes, it is enjoyable actually. Um, for, what is it? I find it enjoyable because the things that you remember, the things that float back into your mind are the nice things. I suppose that depends partly on your nature. There may be pessimistic people who the things that float back are only horrible, but um, as far as I'm concerned, I remember lovely things. Um, A friend of mine, we were talking about this the other day, and she said, well, when I'm sitting and letting my mind float, what I remember is all the men I ever went to bed with. <laughs> <laughs> That made me always laugh, because for a long time, that used to be what I did, too. <laughs> Oddly enough, by now, by now I've got so old that I, I, mean, I still remember men, but I don't really value that so much. Not anything like, it's, it's nice things that happen, lovely things, lovely places. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of focus in the book on places. Um, and it seems in some ways e easier for you to recall those places more fully than, than, than some of the people, like your, mother, your, your grandmother's garden, the house you grew up in in, in Norfolk. I think it is easier for me. I think that possibly I did have an unfortunate love affair right early in my life, a very disappointing one, and it took me a long time to get over it. And I think that that probably disillusioned me with people a bit. Mm. So that faces are all right, they <laughs> the same. But, but the things that you look at, the places and the people, have changed in the book, and I think that's what's interesting. 
from, from other books that you've written, your perspective on things has, has, has changed slightly. Um, you seem angrier about, about some, some things or less happy about other things, like, for example, our position in Europe, but also when you write about um, Tobago um, and your experiences there and, and the people there. I think that was the first time I'd, I'd, I'd read it and I thought, well, she's actually quite angry about this. I was quite angry because it's the most beautiful place. And the sight of the liberties that were being taken with it is post-colonial post colonialism. It was disgusting, really, how it was being used. And there was a very small, tiny, pathetic attempt at a revolution soon after I'd been there. It went to the extent of people standing on beaches saying, go away, whitey, and walking into hotels and breaking ashtrays. <laughs> <laughs> they were very nice, gentle people. They didn't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> but I remember thinking, well, the time may come when they will want to hurt people. And they're quite right, too. Um. In, in previous memoirs and in conversations, you talked about how frustrated you felt um, with the older generation in your family and their uh, preference to keep things quiet, to sweep them under the rug, to pretend that things that you knew were going on were going on um, and that they didn't want to talk about, not just in the wider society, but also in your family and in in your relationships, you were unmarried and you were in a long-term relationship with a black man. Um, and th there were things that were very difficult to talk about. And in this book, you say that you recognise that actually there might have been some value in that approach. Well, that was funny. To begin with, when I was younger, I felt really very ashamed of myself in that when I did things which I knew my family would disapprove of, which I very soon did start doing, um, Instead of coming out about it, I went underground because I did. I loved my family. I didn't want to have confrontations with them, and I was a coward about it, really. And I felt that I was being a coward. But it was, and when it turned out, as it did. That of course, really, my mother knew pretty well everything that had been going on. But on the other hand, when she had to face it by reading my first book, she did face it. She didn't want to. She didn't want to. She wanted to tell me not to publish that book. But my brother said, don't be silly, she must publish it, and I did. And we had one evening during which my mother and I sat and talked as two adult women. She knew pretty well everything that had gone on. And I thought, how wonderful. We've now come to a new stage in our relationship. From that moment on, she never mentioned the book again. <laughs> and I used to send her reviews of it, because it did well. And I thought, well, that'll show her that people aren't shocked by it. She never commented, not a word. And how did that make you feel? And first of all, I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. I was quite sort of shocked by it. And then I thought it was comic. And then gradually, as the years went by, I thought, well, I don't know. 
It seems to me that it was a very effective way of dealing with a difficult problem. <laughs> your, your daughter, who you dearly love, does something that you didn't like. All right, so let's pretend she hasn't done it. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, my mother and I got on tremendously. We loved each other dearly. Yeah. Um. You, the, 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 the centrepiece um, of the book is an incredibly traumatic, uh, uh, life-threatening episode, um, which you'd written about previously for granted. You'd written an essay, and so this is the kind of nucleus of the book, which is where, um, when you were 43, you unexpectedly uh, fell pregnant um, and subsequently miscarried and almost died. Um, and this is not, it's not entirely, the, it's the essay and more. Uh, um, and I wonder how your perspective on that has changed now that you're much, now that you're much further from it. Is, it. is it still the same or do you feel differently about that? My perspective on that hasn't changed a bit. Um, I never was a maternal person, but I was sort of in my 40s, like many people, overtaken by instinct. And actually sort of betrayed myself into a pregnancy, as I realised afterwards, and decided to go ahead with it, and felt extremely happy while I was deciding that. And then it went, I had a miscarriage, and it was a very, very dangerous and bad one. I very, very nearly died. It was a, I was aware a very little while this was going on in the hospital, but I was aware of what was going on, and I was aware that the doctor said, ring the lab and tell him to run with that blood. And then he said, I think we were going to give me an injection or something, and he said, she's, she's very near collapse. And I remember thinking just dimly, Silly euphemism. If what I'm in now isn't collapse, what he means, she's nearly dead. And then I thought, well, if I die, I die. And that was all I thought. I was too weak to think anything more. But when I came round from the operation, realised that I was still alive, even although I was lying on my back being sick, which is what I hate most in the whole world, a huge wave of joy seemed to come up from inside me. Whoo! I'm alive! And it was so great that although I was sad about having lost the child, I wasn't really very sad. It never really worried me long. I was much, much more happier being alive than I was about anything else. And that surprised me. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions now for Diana. Of course, quickly, Sylvia, yes. Is there a particular gown that if you could create 
I'll, I'll say for you. So, so you you've written and you write in this book about um, the, the, the how sad you are that ball gowns have have gone away. That you know that that the, the evening dress has kind of left us. That's one of the things we lost. And is there a particular dress that you remember or that you would like to that you would like to have back, or a dress that you never had? Um, there are plenty of dresses that I remember and would like to have back, but. Um, Dresses mattered to me a lot for a long time, and then for a short time, then for an even longer time, I didn't really think about them much. But it was always there. I've always liked clothes. Mm. Yeah, and now you're using mail order. That's your. That's and like I love. I love. Um, I'm. I'm an absolute sucker for mail order. <laughs> <laughs> I pour over mail. I say to myself, I'm not going to order anything. I've got more clothes than I need in my cupboard. But I, oh, I think I do think I must have that. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the things. Um, yeah, I remember a smash and grab in the V&A gift shop where you were rustling with it, going, no, I won't have it, I won't have it, I won't have it. And I knew as soon as you saw it, it was going home, and it did. <laughs> um, I'll take another question um, or two for Diana, if anybody has one. Lady there, sorry, there was somebody there I couldn't see. Yes, yes, go ahead. Can I ask, do you have any regrets? Oh, well, do you have any regrets? We know that you do, but um, what, do you, what, what regrets do you have? Do you know what I do most is think I've been incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky. One way or another, there have been things that have been regrettable, but it couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been more extraordinary. It's like ending up in this extraordinary place where I now live, having had the luck to hit on it. And do you know, actually, I think that Extraordinary Lucky is a really nice place to leave this evening. So um, I want you to join me in saying thank you to our incredible guests tonight, to Sloan Crosley, to Nick Frost, and to Diana Atwell. I want to thank all of you for being here, and Simon Gilks at the Montreal London for hosting me this year. Thank you all for your support, and to all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How many people have come? Pretty good, isn't it?